And I would be an interview like, okay, so tell me about the dredge on your fried chicken. And it's like, boop, boop, boop. And while that's fascinating, um, it would be like the interview would wrap and we'd be walking back to set. And, you know, someone would say something like, you know, it's funny. I learned how to make that dredge when I was in Morocco and I was staying in this, you know, blah. And I'm like, what? No, I didn't know that. And you didn't say that just now. Like, what? Why didn't you just tell me that in the interview room? Um, or like, yeah, you know, I staged under Jonathan Waxman when I was like, 18. I'm like, what? No. You know, so it was all of these cool things. And I'm like, I want to know more about that. And I don't have time on our show. You know, it's, it's quick. Like you have to tell the story quick. Um, and I just remember being like, I really wish I could do that. I wish I could like talk to them more. And it, I had the idea for like three years before I actually let myself, you know, give into it and do it because it's like terrifying to start your own thing. But, um, I just wanted to to have more candid conversations. I wanted to like understand. I think I think I said it already, but it's the more we hear other people's stories, the more we open our minds. Welcome to this episode of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features Lindsay Luttrell, Emmy-nominated producer of food competition shows for Food Network, who has vast experience in film. She also is the creator and host of one of my favorite podcasts, Table 5, where she interviews big-name chefs on their career journey, gives restaurant recommendations, and much more. Her shows create tremendous impact for the contestants, crew, viewers, and beyond. Lindsay and I discuss her growing up in Florida near the Alabama border, her path to working in film, her service industry pit stop in New York City, how she finally started her podcast, the joy that food shows can create, and how beautiful meals and restaurants really bring people together. Here is Lindsay Luttrell on People Are the Answer. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm honored. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into your work and be great if you could start off by just telling our listeners where you're based and what your current role is. Yeah, so I live in Los Angeles in Santa Monica, and my current role is um, co-executive producer of a couple different um, culinary competition shows on Food Network. And then I have a side project where I um, host a podcast called Table 5, where I interview chefs and food enthusiasts and other people in the culinary space. Awesome. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Table 5. Excited to dig in there. And, you know, in life, generally, what would you say motivates you? You know, I think I'm motivated most. And I feel like my dad would laugh at this answer because he's always like, your generation just has to be happy. I think I'm motivated by that. Like what's, what's my happiness? What will bring joy in the long run? And I think, you know, no, I'm not necessarily happy every day with everything I'm doing. It's not like I'm always like, my job is the best, but I think the little things that you can do in your, in your day to bring that happiness, whatever that is, um, you know, I, I think that's kind of what motivates me. Like what's going to bring me joy in this moment, in this day, if, if today is going to be a really hard day, what can I make sure I do at the end of the week to like bring that back up? Um, so really, I think it's like I'm motivated by finding the happiness. I mean, I think that's a wonderful motivator. And I think if you are happy, generally the people around you will be happier as well. And, um, you know, that goes a really long way. So appreciate you sharing that. And 
Um, you know, I, I know we both grew up in the South. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what it was like there? Yes. Um, so I'm from a small beach town um, in the Panhandle of Florida, right below Alabama. It's called Destin, Florida. Um, I always tell people kind of that general like spiel because they're like, oh, Miami. And I'm like, no, like Alabama. Um, it is, I always say it's closer to anything in Alabama than it is Florida. Um, but my parents are from Alabama and Tennessee and my dad opened a yacht brokerage firm, um, you know, right when they had gotten married, a couple years after they got married. So they moved to Destin and it is it has boomed since, but my mom used to joke that she'd have to go 30 minutes with a cooler in the back of the car to the grocery store because Destin had nothing, not even a grocery store. Um, so it's definitely changed a lot. It has become quite the um, tourist attraction. <laughs> it is um, a beautiful beach. It's my mom always described it as like powdered sugar, white sand, and it, it really is. And I don't think I realized why she was always saying that until I went to other beaches. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is the best beach there is. But it is Southern. I, you know, I always say it, people are like, that's not the South. I'm like, it really is. It's a, it's a melting pot of a lot. All of my parents' friends that they made when they moved to Destin came from somewhere in the South. Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, like that's their friend group. And that's most of Destin. It's kind of a melting pot of those, those states. So um, I loved it. I still love it. Going yeah. home is, you know, special time. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of Florida being the South, if, if any of Florida is the South, that's certainly the panhandle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I like mean, maybe it's not funny. South Florida, but. Right. Yeah. I mean, my mom has an accent that you wouldn't believe. So I'm always like, just talk to my mom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. And yeah, I mean, I, I got to check out the beach there. Apparently, you know, I grew up in, in Charleston, South Carolina, another, you know, beach touristy town. I think both of our cities have blown up, you know, in our lifetime. Um, but uh, it's interesting, like when I was a kid, you know, and maybe it was similar for you, like when I said Charleston, it was like I had to say South Carolina, you know, but now because there's West Virginia, there's other ones. and But now like it's the Charleston for better or worse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I love Charleston. I mean, do you go back often? Do you still have family there? Yeah, I do. I um, My mom's there. My brother and his family are there. So yeah, I go back at least a few times a year. Yeah, it's definitely changed a lot. But I, I just, such a cool, such a cool spot. And what a food scene. Y'all really uh, yeah. got a nice food scene there. <laughs> yeah, no, I was about to say that. It's uh, incredible food in Charleston. Been lucky to enjoy it through throughout my life. And um, but yeah, it sounds like it was an interesting experience in Destin. And uh, I'm curious, you know, what what was childhood like there? Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's different today. I don't know. Obviously, it's been a long time since I was a child in Destin. But when I was growing up, it was very small town. It was very like I couldn't, you know, go do something over here thinking I was away from everyone without my mom knowing before I got home. You know, she'd come to the front door with this look and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And she's like, well, Miss Nancy just called me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how did Miss Nancy see me doing whatever I was doing? You know, it's it was small town, but we, you know, it was kind of like that. Um, I don't know. I'm always like it's kind of reminds me of like a TV show. It was like that idyllic. I mean, I played with our I'm one of four siblings now. I mean, one of four. But I growing up, it was the three of us. It was me and my um, twin sister, my older sister. 
until my brother was born. We were much older. We were 12 and 14. So it was like the three of us, our neighbors were three boys and we played until one of our moms called us in for dinner. You know, like we were outside all the time. It was pretty idyllic. Um, we were, you know, church on Sundays and just kind of like a nice Southern little upbringing. And, and Destin was a great little spot for that. It's like right on the water. You know, we were always on the boat, always swimming in a pool, always at the beach, you know, classic uh, Florida, I guess. But yeah, pretty idyllic is what I always say. I'm like, you know, no complaints. Yeah, that that, that sounds great. And, um, you know, it sounds like you had a great family and uh, you mentioned earlier being motivated by joy. And I'm curious, did you see, you know, giving back sort of modeled growing up, like people helping other people out and like, where did that clearly stuck into your personality? So I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I just mentioned we were, we, you know, went to church on Sundays. I think coming from that background, you saw, you saw giving all the time, you know, we, we would go to different, um, you know, nursing homes during the holiday and sing carols and like bring, you know, baked goods. And we would go, you know, my, my mom was always donating stuff to different, you know, goodwill shelter, whatever it was to kind of provide for the less fortunate. I always saw that, um, to this day, my mom will you know pass someone that she thinks needs a helping hand. And whether it's, $5, whatever change she has in her purse. Maybe it's a granola bar that's still in there and she hands it to someone and she's like, Jesus loves you. You know, so I just, I've always kind of seen, seen that, um, throughout different, different avenues. So I don't have one thing that really sticks out, but, um, I come from a family that's, that's very giving. And obviously I saw it a lot in church and, um, yeah, you know, that just always, those kind of early memories stick with you. Yeah. And given that you're on the sort of Florida, Alabama border, um, I'm curious if you're familiar with the Florabama mullet toss. Um, and you are, yeah. So I yes. asked because the only reason I know about it is like maybe 20 years ago, my brother was part of a documentary shoot for it. And that was, you know, I watched that and that's all I know about it, but I was just uh, curious. Yeah, I am familiar. And I think there's also like a, um, and I may be wrong. I'm like, someone needs to fact check me here. But I think there's also like a queen or like a, a someone who gets kind of like crowned Miss Mullet or Miss Mullet Toss or something. I think there's almost like not like a pageant to it, but there's some sort of like honor where someone gets that like title. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Is that, yeah. did you ever see it in person? I don't think so. We have a, we have a different thing in Destin called um, Miss Destin and it's, you know, it's pageant like, but it's really kind of a, a girl in the community who, you know, is kind of goes and gets the Miss Destin title, but then they go down to the docks and they're there for like the fish weigh-ins with the different boats that come in. And it's, you know, more kind of like that, but I don't think I ever saw the actual mullet toss, but I, I definitely am privy to that. All right. Well, assuming it's still going on, maybe it should be on the bucket list. It seems like a cool event. <laughs> yeah, I think I will. I'll add that to my list. <laughs> So, you know, I saw that you, you went over to the university of Alabama. Tell me about that choice and what that experience was like for you. You know, I don't want to discredit anyone in my family when I say this, but I don't know that it was that much of a choice. Like I actually don't remember like thinking like, Oh, am I going to go to Alabama? It was kind of like, well, I'm going to Alabama. So when I do that, <laughs> you know, um, I actually remember like pitching my dad. Like I just always wanted to live in California. 
And I remember pitching my dad this, like, I actually made an appointment at his office. I was like, prepared. I'm like, I'm going to go to California. And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't actually look at it and think like, I need to go to USC because of this school and whatever. I just was like, I'm going to LA and that's cool. And I did this whole spiel and he was like, great, sweetie, you can go to a school in, in California. That's fine. And I was like, really? Oh, okay. This is easier than I thought. He's like, I don't know who's paying for it, but you can go. And I'm like, oh, copy. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I do think had I gone to either one of my parents and actually had a different school in mind and somewhere I really wanted to go for some reason, they would have been supportive, but I did not. Um, both of my parents went to Alabama. Other family members before them went to Alabama. It was kind of in our blood. I grew up watching Alabama games, going to Alabama games, and yeah. I wouldn't take it back for anything. It was the best four, well, four and a half years for me. <laughs> um, I loved it. And I, I majored in communications and I minored in psychology and creative writing. And it's just an experience that I like hold very near and dear. And how'd you decide you wanted to do communications? You know, I, I don't really, I think it was just an obvious choice because I've just always been a communicator. I'm a, I'm a talker. I was most talkative in every class. You know, there wasn't a, a school year that went by where my parents didn't get some notice call note sent home that like I was talking too much. I was voted most talkative senior year. That was my superlative. Um, so I think it was just like, I'm going to do something that requires communication, whatever that is. And I majored in audio and video production, kind of not even really knowing what I was doing or why. I just was like, well, here I go. And I guess this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I actually had some really great teachers who had come from LA and New York and they had already experienced the industry and then came back to teach. And I learned a lot in that way. Like it was, I had a couple classes that I felt really hands-on. It was really like, take the camera and go shoot something. And, you know, we were learning about different things that I don't know that a teacher who maybe hadn't experienced the industry would have as much knowledge on, or, or maybe I'm wrong, but my teachers were very knowledgeable and could kind of like speak from experience. And so I remember those last couple of years in communications being really pivotal because I was like, oh, this is fun. Like, are they like have knowledge that it's outside of the book? Um, so yeah, I think I just was kind of, I chose it and then like leaned in and it, it makes sense. I mean, not one person in the entertainment industry has ever asked where I went to college for any, like to actually acquire a job. I mean, they know because I work with them, but um, it's, it's, you know, I think it had its benefits. Yeah, for sure. I think getting that foundational education is, is really important and pretty much any industry. I mean, I think film in particular is one that you can also learn on the job. In, in some capacities, but, um, yeah, I think that was a, a good way to do it. And, um, you know, when we t start talking about table five, I want to dig into your service industry experience, but can you kind of summarize what you're up to between college and going into the film space? Yeah. So I actually graduated college, um, and moved right to LA. So that was the film space was my first job. Um, I mean, my first job was actually working at Ace Hardware in Destin, Florida. <laughs> but um, my first pay, like paying job outside of college, um, I moved to LA. I just, I always wanted to. And I remember if I don't go now, I'm not going to go. My twin sister had just gotten married, well, a year before. Um, 
she had a baby. Like, I was like, if I don't go, like, I'm going to stay here and just be this baby's best friend. So I got to go. Um, and I moved across the country. I didn't know anyone here. And I randomly was able to secure a um, internship. And it was just like the best experience. It was wild. I don't know how I did it. Like when I look back, I'm like, that was crazy and weird. But um, so I worked as a PA and from there, well, an intern PA. And then from there, uh, the AD on that movie um, was so nice and kind of took me under his wing, Dave Page. I'll never forget him. And then he would call and hire me for different things. So I went from a PA to a coordinator kind of on different independent features then left and was on, you know, did um, TV shows. There was a show called Worst Week on ABC and then went into the talk show space. And then I was a talent coordinating producer for Lopez Tonight and uh, really loved my time with George Lopez. I mean, he was incredible. So I was kind of just bouncing around in the in the in the entertainment world. Like I did it all. Like I was in independent features and then I was in, you know, primetime TV and then I was in talk shows and then, you know. Um, bounced around before I moved to New York. And that's where I was in the service industry. It's cool that you got to experience all these different types of productions. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I look at it now as like, it was such a foundation. I didn't realize it at the time. In fact, I remember at the time feeling pretty lost. You know, I'm like, freelance is already a beast because you're like, what's the next thing and when's it coming? And I was so young that I didn't really understand how to manage that that time, that money, that whole thing was just very hard for me. It's like, wait, so you're working for four weeks and then you're off for six and then you're working for eight weeks and then you're off for two. And then you're, you know, it's kind of a, a, a weird. And of course I didn't, I didn't know anyone like that. Like every time I called my dad for advice, he'd be like, I don't know. I don't know anyone who does that. I, you, I can't help you. And I'm like, okay, well, that's lovely. Um, so I, I don't remember feeling this way at the time, but now I'm like, that was such a good foundation. I really, I did everything from like, you know, coordinating in the office and like being kind of like bird's eye view of the set and then being on set and then, you know, working closely with the the actor of the show, like to like knowing the host of the, you know, it's like, I just had my hands on everything. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great way to learn. And, you know, those early years are great for that. And um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I'd be curious to know just a little bit more about, you know, talent coordinating and, and what that entails. And, um, and I know you did some casting work as well. Yeah. Um, so talent coordinating was probably one of my most fun jobs. Like I loved that job so much. Um, and I remember uh, when that job ended with Lopez tonight, I remember thinking like, how do I just get that job on another show? And people were like, you don't like someone has to quit and they're never going to quit. That's such a fun job. Like you're not going to just go to Fallon and be his talent coordinating producer because he already has one who's never going to leave. And I was like, oh, okay. And they weren't wrong. Like I never really found that job again. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really fun. I basically worked for the two talent bookers and they would, you know, go out to the teams of, of the celebrities. So we would have on um, celebrities that were promoting something like most late night shows, they come on, they promote something. Um, and then I basically was the late, like the liaison between them and the show. So once they were booked, I kind of handled everything from there. I was their point of contact. I got to go meet them at the, at the stage and show them around, take them in their green room. Um, I'm always like, I could write a book about the conversations and the cool people I met and the Lopez tonight green rooms. Like that was such, um, 
an incredible experience. Uh, so yeah, I did that. And then casting was kind of, that was my next step into casting because, or kind of my step into casting because I, I had never done casting before. But when I was looking for a job, when I moved back from New York, I kind of relied on those like relationship skills I learned as a talent coordinating producer to convince people I could do casting and it worked. <laughs> and so then I was casting different shows. I mean, I cast so many random things, but um, that was really fun too. Again, just talking to people. It's like, it's, I guess my gift. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And what led you to New York and how long till you went back to California? So my older sister moved to New York right when she graduated college and she's only 21 months older than my twin sister and me. So we, I felt like we're almost like triplets growing up. <laughs> we were always, you know, together. And when she was in New York and I was in LA, every time I was off because of the freelance life, you know, she'd be like, well, why aren't you just coming to New York if you have three weeks off? Like, come here and see if you want to live here. I'm like, I don't want to live there. She's like, how do you know? You know, so she was always kind of tempting me with like, come to New York while you're off. And um, I ended up having a lot of time off and was kind of like, didn't know what the next thing was going to be. And I think, I guess, just was feeling that like itch. Like, I'm like, okay, maybe I'll try something. So I moved to New York for what was supposed to be the summer because I was going on a trip to Australia uh, by myself at the end of summer. And so I was like, okay, I'll just go for a couple months until my trip. And then I'll go back to LA and carry on as usual. Um, but I went to New York and I just kind of bebopped around for the summer. And then I did love it. I mean, it's how, how can you not? I mean, I just, New York is one of those cities that you're just, I'm like, if you don't feel alive in New York, I don't know. I don't know how to help you. Like, I'm just like, New York has an energy that you just can't deny. And I went to Australia and I came back to LA to set up my next phase of life. And it just like, didn't feel right. And I'm like, I'm going to go back to New York. So I did. But at this point I'm like, what am I going to do in New York? You know? Um, so I decided to take classes in on-air hosting and broadcasting and to, you know, to support that, I was like, I have to go get a job. And I found a job like randomly, I think it was like a Craigslist posting for a hostess at the Odeon in Tribeca, which I knew nothing about, but I was like, I can be a hostess. And I went and I got the job and it was great. And I was kind of, I think I had that job for maybe two months when the manager was like, hey, can we talk to you? And it was, it was him and the owner. And I was like, oh, hey, Lynn. Uh, and they were like, we want you to be a manager. And I was like, I don't know. I, I can't be a manager. I've never even like really waited tables. I've never been a bartender. Like I don't know the restaurant space. This is like my first real restaurant job. Like I had run food at like this like seafood shack in our hometown. Um, but it was literally like calling someone's name and handing them their fried shrimp basket. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't, I can't do this. Um, but it, they thought that I could. And so I did. And I always say at the time, I couldn't let myself really enjoy that experience because I felt like I'm supposed to be in LA working in TV and film. Like, what am I doing here? I felt very lost um, and couldn't figure out my life in New York. I'm, I'm like, New York chewed me up and spit me out in that two years. But um, looking back, it was a just pivotal moment for me, an incredible experience. And I credit a lot of what I learned at the Odeon. I credit the owner Lynn with a lot of what I know about restaurant service and etiquette. And I just enjoy that experience so much. There's a lot of times I like hearken back to that and like, 
I'm like, oh, what a time. I wish I could have enjoyed it more, but at least I'm, I'm holding it high up now. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how sometimes experiences when we're young, we don't realize how pivotal they are and how much they're going to affect our future. And, uh, you know, having listened to most episodes of your podcast, you know, I kind of feel like I've been to the Odeon. I haven't yet, but now I want to go. <laughs> right. I and, know. I really uh, put it on a pedestal. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, maybe you hype it up. We'll see, see when I go there. But, um, it seems like, uh, it was a really cool place where, where you learned a lot and, um, you know, even named your podcast after your favorite table there. Yeah, I did. Um, I think that was like in a way to honor that experience since I didn't give it, <laughs> I didn't give it what it deserved when I was there. But, um, I also love that table so much. <laughs> it's the cutest, cutest little spot. Um, yeah, it was, it was a great time and I, and, I think when I was thinking about the podcast and like naming it and trying to come up with like what will be inclusive, because I don't want it to feel like it's just chats with chefs and I don't want it to feel like I'm pigeonholed into only talking to certain people. And you know what? At the table, those are the best conversations. I was like, I'm just going to name it after my favorite table and we'll see how it unfolds. Love it. You should, uh, in the future, maybe record an episode at table five, like after hours or something. Yeah. I've actually thought of that. I'm like, I would love to interview the owner, Lynn, and, and be like, I'll come to New York. I'll sit at table five with you. I will have Odeon fries and we will talk it all out. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, I hope that happens. And we'll, we'll dig some more into the food scene, but you, you went back to LA, you know, it looks like you worked in a variety of, uh, unscripted or reality shows and you know what what were those years like before you really got deep into the food world um yeah before the food world i was really bouncing around casting i was in freelance casting i, I moved up from a casting associate to a casting producer director and um was doing all kinds of shows i remember one of my first shows was biggest loser and that was so fun i got to go around uh, travel to different cities with this amazing casting producer, Shannon McCarty. I love her so much. Um, and we just were interviewing for Biggest Loser. And then I, from there, did Extreme Weight Loss that was on ABC and met some incredible people, some of which I'm still friends with, you know, through, through social media, the gift of social media um, and hearing their stories. I just like, I think casting really helped me understand the importance of like people's story like people have a story that that you know the more we hear other people's stories the better we become as humans and i think because i was casting such um kind of like intimate shows you know when you're talking about someone's weight loss like that's that's a big deal especially extreme weight loss there was a lot of people who had you know, mental and health issues kind of accompanied with that. And so they'd come to you and they just were laying it all out on the line because I was the only person who could help them at this point. Like only this person can help me. And wow. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was really Sounds moving. moving. Yeah, yeah. It was moving. It was really, it was really moving. And those people, um, you know, put a lot of trust in you. Like these just two girls coming into town, setting up a casting call and they pull you aside and they're like, you have to help, you know? Um, oh. So casting was, I, I loved it. I was just bouncing around doing casting and I ended up, you know, I did so many different things. I can't even think of them all. I'm like, I'm like, those two like are really pivotal, but there was a lot of different shows and types I cast. Like we did one show that was like survival. We did one show where it's like, you know, do you have a, a handyman type talent? Can you build blah, blah, blah? You know? So, I mean, I was always looking for stuff, but um 
yeah, I eventually ended up casting for shows on Food Network, which is how I kind of got into that world. Well, it's, that sounds really interesting. And, um, you know, when you were looking to cast people, were you looking for like really authentic stories, authentic people, or what was your strategy? Yeah, I just feel like, you know, I kind of got to the point in casting where I could, I always say, I think I can read people really well. Uh, my dad is like that. You know, growing up, he would always know if a friend was going to be a friend forever or if that was a fair weather friend. And he was always right. Like anytime he had a bad feeling about somebody and I'd be like, dad, you're being mean, you know, whatever it was, you know, X amount of time later, I'm like, you were right. That's so annoying. Um, but yeah, I think I can read people really well. And it's certainly when you start to hone that skill in casting, you're like, okay, you just want to be on TV and you're going to say anything I need you to say. But then there was people who, yeah, you're looking for that like authenticity, that genuine desire. Um, I mean, depending on the show, of course, like sometimes right. you're just like, you're a personality and like hilarious. Or like, you're like, oh, I can tell no one's going to like you. And we need like that villain type person. Like you're, you know, you're combative, you're a little argumentative, you know, whatever. But um, yeah. I didn't find myself on a lot of those shows. So it didn't make me feel good. Um, I did a lot of, of weight loss, cooking, um, you know, like, do you have a talent type yeah. shows? Because the other ones don't sit well with me. But yeah, I was just looking for authenticity, a story that like, I, I you know, you want to be able to tell a story that people can either relate to or find inspiring. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I know you, you said you don't remember all, all of them. I don't, I have a very small list, so I think it's a very tiny, uh, percentage of them, but yeah, I have down biggest loser, the people's couch, opposite worlds, extreme weight loss, married at first sight, real world, a couple yes. different married at first sights. Yes. I kind of forgot. That's about before we get sight. into food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah married at first one. sight was interesting because I would, um, Wow. I forgot about Married at First Sight. <laughs> I would, I actually had a boyfriend at the time and I remember being like, Hey, is it okay if I download this dating app Tinder and, um, my job is going to pay for it so that I can have, cause it would only do your location. But if you paid for this like premium account, you could do locations that you weren't actually in. And, you know, we were casting, I think in Miami one season. And so I like had a Tinder profile in Miami and I would message people and I would just say, like I would match with them and then I'd have to message them and be like, Hey, I'm actually a casting producer for this show. Like, can I pick your brain? Um, a lot of times I got blocked. A lot of times I got asked out on a date, <laughs> you know, a lot of times it was like, no, but when you're in Miami, I'm like, no, no. <laughs> but so there was some grassroots approach, uh, grassroots approach for that one. Um, yeah. So Merit at First Sight was interesting. And that was, I think I did the first season. First or second. I mean, it was new. So people yeah. weren't like, you're like, what? Um, I think now it's probably a little not to take away from the casting. I'm not easier, but it's well known. Like once a show has a first right. season and people can attach themselves to something, it's a lot easier to cast. That um, makes sense. But yeah, so Opposite Worlds, I think, was a little like, um, I can't even believe I don't really remember. I think it was the one that was a little survivor like. It was kind of like <laughs> resilience and like physical, I think. Um, yeah, that was, there was, see so many different shows, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you, you really build a resume, a cast of characters in your, in your weapon draw. In, in my film endeavors, I I've done, you know, a handful of unscripted projects and, you know, people always ask when they meet somebody that works in like reality television, like, is it real? Is it fake? Et cetera. And, you know, tell me if what I've found is, is true. You know, it really varies by show. Some of them are completely real. Some of them are completely fake. A lot of them are in between. Yeah. You know, I, 
and I'm sure people won't believe this. I've never worked on one that wasn't real. Like, I don't know. In terms of casting, I guess there could be some things I don't know because casting kind of ends before production, you know? Um, so like, I remember hearing things about Biggest Loser and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I just, I just cast you on Biggest I have no idea. Um, and, you know, and I don't know, but in the term, in terms of anything I've worked on, like it's all real. Like, and I, I've never had that experience. Thank goodness. Um, I did do a show called Southern Charm New Orleans where I was the talent coordinator um, which was a different, a totally different experience. Cause it was, you know, that ensemble cast of yeah. uh, reality TV and it wasn't, there was no competition. So I was so used it's to like, competition. like pure drama, pure drama. And right. I loved that cast. They were so fun. I loved living in new Orleans for that time. It's like one of my favorite cities, but I didn't, I didn't like, and it wasn't made up. None of it was made up, but I didn't like knowing that like, there was drama and that I had to go and like shoot it. Like I didn't like that. <laughs> so um, I realized pretty, pretty quickly that that was not, I will watch it. I'm the biggest Bravo holic. Like, I mean, I was out of town when Southern charm, um, the latest season came out and I was literally like, Oh, I really want to go back to the hotel and watch Southern charm. And I'm like, that is really bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm no, no discredit. I'm a Bravo holic and I love those shows. I do not, I did not want to make them. Um, but they were also real from my experience. That was real. They were real friends. They had real history and they had real issues. Yep. Well, the original Southern Charms in my hometown of Charleston, that yes. is what got me watching it originally, you know, may be embarrassing myself with some people, but I watch it still. My wife and I watch it. Yeah. Um, that's the one that I was like, the new Southern Charm is out and I have to understand what's happening with yeah. Austin and Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a whole whole thing going on there. We don't want, we don't have to dig too deep yeah, into it here, but we won't go we can, there. We can talk again offline or, yeah. or we can do a separate <laughs> Bravo podcast. We um, should. So, so you got into casting for the Food Network and, you know, eventually started producing shows for the Food Network. Can you tell me about that process? Yeah, I um, was, you know, finished a job, whatever it was, married at first sight. It was one of those, actually, because I remember the company I was with before I went to this company. Um, and they were looking for, uh, you know, a casting producer to come and cast chefs. And I'd never done that before, but I was like, oh, that sounds fun. Um, I got the job and then I ended up staying until I, I'm here doing this job. Um, it was fun. It's, you know, that's also kind of um, grassroots-ish in the sense that like, I wasn't just like posting on like Facebook and being like, hey, apply here. I was really digging in and finding different restaurants that I thought looked good. I'm like, does the food look good? Do they, do they seem to have a fun personality? Because most restaurants have a website you can go to that shows like who the chef is. There's a picture of them. Maybe sometimes there's a bio. Um, most restaurants now, more so now than they used to, we'll have an Instagram where you can see the food. I think that's also kind of like helped kind of hone my love of restaurants, like diving in and seeing the way people decorate them, what the vibe is, how they chose a theme, why they chose that. Um, so it was kind of the same idea, just getting on social media, getting on, you know, different websites, asking friends, do you have a favorite restaurant in your town? Do you know the chef? Um, because Guys Grocery Games was the first show that I cast for um, this company, the first chef show I did. And they they have, you know, some parameters. There's definitely parameters around who you can cast. And one of them is 
they don't want chefs who have been on TV before because they want them to come on and like experience this. Like it's a really fun show and they don't want it to be like, you know, all seasoned and, um, and they, you know, because it's so intense and because it's so real and it requires like a lot of skill to go in there and play this game and also be able to do it in 20 minutes, essentially, because you shop and you plate and whatever um, you, they want you to like, you know, have be in a restaurant because that's like high intensity and maybe you can, um, you know, stand up to the game with that kind of experience. So it was fun. Like I, I loved it. I, that's how I really kind of started in this whole food network world was casting chefs for these shows. And it was a blast. What a fun way to explore restaurants and to learn yeah. about the industry. Yeah. And it's really fun. I've mentioned to you before, you know, I'm a huge fan of food competition shows. You know, I love food. I love cooking. Um, but they just, it's always been kind of an escape for me in terms of, you know, great shows with stakes that are interesting, but like, it's not life and death. You can, you can get out of your mind a little bit. Um, and you know, I've always been a huge fan and, uh, you know, I, I have down that you've worked on guys, grocery games and super chef grudge match and tournament of champions, um, among others, you know, what's it like working on these shows that are like at the forefront of the food industry, especially like, you know, probably when you started food TV was a little more niche than it's become. Yeah, for sure. Um, my first season. So when I was casting for guys, grocery games, the executive producer at the time, um, would start kind of working closely with me and casting to be like, cause our episodes are themed on that show. It's like best burgers, best over the top, best guilty pleasure. So you kind of have to like find these four chefs who can do that. And you don't want four chefs who do smash burgers. You want one smash burger chef, one over the top, you know? So he would start to come over to my desk and be like, okay, who do you have that I could maybe slot in here? And so I was working with him closely and then eventually he was like, we need someone like you in the field. Like, would you ever come? I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want to do that. I've done that. I started my career that way. And um, he was like, no, 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 please. One season. Just try it. We shoot up in Sonoma County. It's wine country. Come. Like he was totally selling me on it. And I'm like, fine, I'll do one season. And here I am six years later. So um, it was a little more niche at the time. I think six years ago, it was definitely on its upswing. But um, yeah, it's... it's um, a really fun, really fun experience. And it requires, you know, such a skill that it's fun for me to, to see and to watch. And I'm just like in awe of everyone who comes on because it's, it's shocking to me every time, you know, what they're capable of doing. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it really is impressive what some of these chefs can do. And, uh, you know, I want to make it clear to the listeners that like, I think that this work creates tremendous positive impact, whether it's the chefs that are coming on board for the shows, whether it's, you know, the people working on the shows, the viewers at home, like I said, myself, you know, the opportunity to sort of escape and get some joy from these shows. Um, I think it, it I mean, it's been a big thing for me personally in my life. You know, I remember watching Emerald on TV as a kid. Um, Emerald Live would be on like right around when I was going to sleep, I remember as a kid and I would watch that and, you know, I just, Emerald made me love sort of that sort of personality driven chef. And, you know, then I got into Iron Chef and Next Food Network Star, which Guy came from, Guy Fieri came from Next Food Network Star. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, he... um it's funny. I, he, I, you know, I have the privilege of like hearing him tell his story a lot to a lot of different people. And each time there's like some other like new tidbit, but 
he always talks about how he went on that and not to speak for Guy Fieri, but he does talk about how he went on that kind of being like, I'm going to go and have a fun time. Like, I'm not going to win this thing. I don't, you know, it's not going to be like, I, I'm the one at the end. I'm just going to go have fun. And like, it's another experience. Like I'm going to come back and run my restaurants and carry on with life and look how life changing that was for him. So yeah, it's, um, it is impactful. He's a force of nature. I mean, obviously he's like kind of a one in a zillion type to come through a show like that. There've been some great people and stars that have come through, but no one of his magnitude. And it's been really interesting to watch sort of his relationship in pop culture with the world. And, you know, there's a time where everyone's like makes fun of him and like, oh, he's just like the douchey guy with the hair that goes to diners, drive-ins and dives. And now he's almost like, I don't know, like a food dad for people. I feel like, you know, he's become such a warm character and he seems like a great guy. Oh, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him. And honestly, his, his persona, his popularity, like who he is, like transcends food. Like at this point, he is a pop culture icon. And um, there's, you know, there's reason for that. Like he is, he is exactly who he presents which I think is always a treat when you meet someone and they're exactly how they present themselves. And he is the first to like raise his hand when there's, you know, something that he can help with, you know, during COVID when he helped with um, all the restaurant relief, like he's the first to be like, what do we do? How do we rally? Like, let's go. So um, he's been an incredible person to work for and to, to know. And yeah, it's been a great ride. That's awesome. And like, he has certainly changed many lives in terms of, you know, sales going up when he goes to somebody's restaurant for diners, drive-ins and dives, or, you know, looking at a show you work on guys, grocery games. Um, I've listened to your episode with Darnell Ferguson, uh, and you've worked on his show, super chef grudge match. It's pretty incredible. It sounds like he came in his first TV experience being on guys, grocery games, and now he's a superstar chef. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's really, um, and one of those amazing stories to, to come out of it. And, and guy often talks about his story too. Just like, you know, this guy came on and he was memorable. And that's what I always say, like, go be memorable and you'll come back. And that is what we say to chefs when they come on. I'm like, only one person's winning today. So don't be the person who like doesn't win and goes into their interview and is like, wah, wah, wah. and then every time we cut away to your interview, you're angry and you're sad and you're mad because no one, A, the audience is going to be like, what's happening? Don't relate to this person. And B, we're not going to want that back. And then you're going to have a bad taste in your mouth and you're not going to come back. Or you're going to watch it in six months when it airs and you're going to be so mad that you didn't like use that opportunity to be grateful, yeah. tell your story and get invited back. And that's what Darnell did. You know, He came on and he was memorable and he's has one of the most grateful hearts I've ever met. And he is truly like, I've gotten to know him even more over the years through, I mean, now I'm one of the executive producers of his show, but um, he is always trying to, to learn, to do better, to, to, you know, figure out like what can make this show this and how do I, how do I relate to the audience and how do I, you know, he's just always trying to learn and grow. And yeah, he's a great example of like, you know, these shows changing lives. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think he's a tremendous example. And so you, you've spent, you know, these years working in some really big food shows. Oh, actually, one as a nerd I wanted to bring up is Tournament of Champions. Oh, um, I love it. I, I, it's so good. I mean, I, I just love the idea of like the best chefs in the country, at least coming together in sort of this bracketed tournament with, you know, the equalizer of the randomizer. Yes. And 
it just it's it's so it's epic yeah. you know and uh it's at least the way it's portrayed it looks like guys sort of put this concept together yeah first of all you're not a nerd it's the best show ever <laughs> if i do say so myself uh, i'm actually leaving on thursday to go back and and shoot the next season um it is incredible and in that i think everyone at our company is like that's one of our favorite shows to work on because because of the caliber of chefs, obviously, like you see them firsthand, like that randomizer is real. And when it rolls, it rolls. What it lands on, it lands on. Until he introduced that like wild card, uh, you know, cog in the wheel last year, like that was the only time we've ever respun the wheel. And that was because the wheel, you know, the randomizer told us to. Like we never, if it landed on something that was just like totally random, it was like, all right, well, good luck. Which also, I mean, the culinary team has to make sure that any way it lands, it's doable on some level. Um, but these chefs are incredible and how they got here is incredible. And then to see them going head to head at that level is, I mean, if you're a food person, it's like the Mecca, you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, I love it. I actually get sad when I have to take a chef into interview and I can't watch the next round. Like the whole time I'm like looking at my phone being like, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really tremendous. If people listening haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And, um, you know, just I'm curious on the randomizer. Let's say you spin the protein that lands on lamb shake. Like is there somebody in the background that's like immediately filling the fridges with lamb? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's an amazing culinary team and a lot of them come from industry jobs or they've been to culinary school and they all work on these shows all the time, which is I'm always like, dang, how do I get that job? <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. But it's it seems really fun. And they're always a, an amazing bunch. But they their biggest concern, like whereas I'm one of the producers and I'm looking for a lot of the story and I want to make sure we're telling this person's story, whatever, their biggest concern is we don't care about that. I mean, they do, but they're like, we want the chef to think this is the most beautiful lamb shank they've ever seen. It has to be the best quality, the best, you know, whatever it is. They want it to be presented perfectly. They want it to be the best quality. They really focus on the food in a way that most of the time I hear chefs talking about our culinary team, really setting them up for success, you know, because they can't, there's no help. It's not like anyone can go out there and help them. So the best we can do is give them the best ingredients, the best whatever all the time. And as soon as that lands, they have everything prepped and ready and they roll it out and stock it up so that the chefs can can go. So whatever it lands on, they're just standing by with the cart, you know, and they're like, OK, it's lamb shank. Here we go. Fill it up. So, yeah, it's really fun. It's fast and it's fun. Very cool. And, um, you know, these you've worked on these incredible shows. You know, if you can ever sneak me on set, just let me know. Um, and you, you started your podcast, Table Five. Um, tell me how that started and, you know, what that journey has been like. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I mentioned like I go into interview on these shows and, you know, a lot of times it's not, I don't have time to like get to know the chefs in a way. It's not like I get to tell their story and I would be an interview like, okay, so tell me about the dredge on your fried chicken. And it's like, boop, boop, boop. And while that's fascinating, um, it would be like the interview would wrap and we'd be walking back to set and, you know, someone would say something like, you know, it's funny. I learned how to make that dredge when I was in Morocco and I was staying in this, you know, blah. And I'm like, what? No, I didn't know that. And you didn't say that just now. Like, what? Why didn't you just tell me that in the interview room? Um, or like, yeah, you know, I staged under Jonathan Waxman when I was like 
18. I'm like, what? No. You know, so it was all of these cool things. And I'm like, I want to know more about that. And I don't have time on our show. You know, it's, it's quick. Like you have to tell the story quick. Um, and I just remember being like, I really wish I could do that. I wish I could like talk to them more. And it, I had the idea for like three years before I actually let myself, you know, give into it and do it because it's like terrifying to start your own thing. But, um, I just wanted to, to have more candid conversations. I wanted to like understand, I think, I think I said it already, but it's the more we hear other people's stories, the more we open our minds and the more we expand and whether it's how they got here, you know, to be a chef or how they grew up or what was a life lesson they learned that really sticks with them. Like that kind of stuff. I feel like it's just so good for us to hear all the time. Just always be immersing yourself in someone's why. And I don't know, I kind of got lost in that and was like, I'm going to do a podcast and I'm going to talk to these people. I'm going to find out these answers. And it's been so fun because I do love hearing different sides of things and hearing where people come from and why they're here. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad that you took the plunge. Um, I know you and I talked about some of the difficulties of starting a podcast and, you know, all of the various elements that are involved. There's a lot going on to try to, you know, make sure your show gets seen. Um, but, you know, it's been for me, it's just been so easy to listen to your episodes because one, I really enjoy your demeanor and your, your interview style. And also, you know, there's, these are chefs that I've been watching for years in, in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun because I feel like I know a lot of them through work. I mean, some I've never met before and I just reached out to and they were so nice to say yes, but some, I, I feel like I know, and then I get them on. I mean, Joe Sasso is a great example. I'm like, I feel like I know you. And then you're saying things I've never heard before. And I tried to research him just like my basic research. I'm like, you don't have an internet presence. <laughs> like what? I don't know anything about you. Um, and his, I, his story, I just loved hearing everything about his story because I was like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. Um, yeah. So it's really fun to kind of dive deeper. You know, I used to think of like Dax Shepard and his podcast Armchair Expert as like my North Star because I loved, I still love listening to his podcast because he just, I'm like, I know the person you're talking to. Like, obviously I know who Matthew McConaughey is, but I'm hearing this side of Matthew McConaughey. I don't hear on late night television. It's not about a press tour. It's like something personal. It's like his intimate details. It's He has a way of like having a fun conversation with guests. And I'm like, you know, if I could ever do an ounce of that, I think that's just so fun. I mean, for me, it's already added so much depth to these people that I'm going to be watching, especially I'm excited for the next season of Tournament of Champions. Oh, just I'm going to be rooting even harder knowing yeah. some of these deep stories of these oh, chefs. I love and that. Honestly, the one that was most moving is someone I've been watching for many years is uh, Chef Simon Majumdar. Oh. I know. It was remarkable. I mean, I highly suggest people, you know, listen to all of them, but that one especially was just really moving and to, to hear his story and how far he's come and kind of how food saved his life was um, just tremendous. Yeah. First of all, thank you for all of your kind words about Table 5. It really means a lot. Um, as you know, a podcast is a true labor of love. <laughs> um, yeah. Simon is one of those stories too. And he actually came here and he was like sitting in my living room and we were recording and I was just like, 
just want to give up and give you a hug. And I knew, I actually knew his story. And it was just even hearing it again and like having him sitting in my chair in my living room talking to me, I was just like, what? Um, he and his wife both are incredible people. Like I've gotten to spend time with his wife too, just through work and, and different things. And, and Sybil's amazing and he's amazing and his story is incredible. And yeah, hearing how food saved his life is obviously a, a you know, an, an incredible story and has served him, you know, now he's, he's kind of parlayed into this whole different career, but, um, yeah, hearing, whenever I hear that, uh, hearing someone's story on table five or wherever has impacted your life or has meant something to you, that is like the greatest compliment. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's what I want is for people to hear stories, even if they're not that deep, but like something resonates with you. That's the best feeling to me is like, finishing a podcast and having a takeaway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely get those from your episodes. And, you know, if I can make a request of a guest, I would love to hear the story of Justin that. Warner. Oh, I love Justin Warner. My, my, uh, my Aquarius buddy, he's, he's on the list. Trust me. He's had a busy, a busy couple of years. He opened a restaurant, he had a baby, so, but he's on the list. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, no, I've, I found his story fascinating. And I remember many years ago watching him on Next Food Network Star. And I was just like, sure, he was like the next Alton Brown or, or something like that. And he seemed to sort of disappear for a little while and then get brought back into the mix. Um, so I just am really curious to know, you know, what his path has been. Yeah, he has a very interesting story. And he's such a fun guy. I feel like he's also one of those people that um, he's kind of like what you what he presents is who he is, which is always um, a nice, a nice feeling when you're around someone that it has a TV presence and you're like, Oh, you're just, you're just Justin Warner all the time. He's a really, he's a really cool guy. And I hope I can hope I can deliver that episode for you. Awesome. I appreciate it. I mean, he and Simon are so great in their roles on tournament of champions. So, oh, it's so good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't, can't wait to see that. And, um, also, you know, through this work, you've become, you know, someone that has checked out so many restaurants. You give uh, recommendations in your show, which I really enjoy. Like I'm, I add them to my list for next time I'm in LA. Oh, I um, love when that. You're talking Thank about you. them. Yeah, of course. And, um, you know, I'm curious if, you know, what your favorite restaurant experience has been or any, you know, couple of favorites you want to share. We obviously talked about the Odeon, but yeah. um, I know Santa Monica is where you live. Yeah. Um, Gosh, to pick a favorite. I feel like that's like asking a mom who their favorite child is. <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't possibly. Um, I have a lot of favorite, I mean, restaurants, you know, where I'm just like, oh, that's my go-to or whatever. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to the experience. And that's something I learned from Lynn at the Odeon. I remember she would say like, it was very much like, I don't, she doesn't want someone just to come in and have lunch or dinner. She wants them to come in and have an experience. And that is why restaurant etiquette was such a big deal to her. I mean, and to this day, like I am such a stickler on restaurant etiquette. There's certain things like don't drop my bill before you've taken my dirty plate, like stuff like that, that I learned at the Odeon. So I feel like a lot of my things are more experience driven. Um, there's a place called Found Oyster in LA that is... I mean, it's one of my favorite spots. And I think it's because when you walk in, it's super small. It's very East Coast vibes. It's like a little seafood spot. Um, there's bar seating. And then there's a couple seats to, against the wall. And then there's some like a pandemic patio they've been able to keep, which is kind of nice, but it's right on the street. 
But the staff, I'm like, I don't know. Do they do they make them go through a personality test or something? Because they're all so happy to be there. And it's an open kitchen and open, like you can see everything essentially. So they're always in a good mood. They're always welcoming. They have great recommendations. The food is killer every time. And to go sit at the bar there like fills me up so much. Like I just enjoy the experience every time. And it's stuff like that that I remember. It's always kind of like the experiences. Um, I'm a huge fan of, obviously, I've had Antonia on the podcast, um, her restaurant, yeah. Scopa. Well, she has a couple of restaurants, but Scopa's closest to me. And it's anytime I take someone there, they're like, wow, you know, this is, it's the experience. It's the people. It's the place. It's a really cool restaurant. Um, and then, of course, the food's good. Have you ever had Antonia LaFaso's food? Unfortunately, I have not. <laughs> Her, her episode of table five was amazing. Like hearing her story, it was, there was a lot of yeah. things I had no idea about, you know, having originally watched her on top chef and then seeing yeah. her pop up everywhere. Like now I can't wait to, to go back and try some of her food soon. Yeah. She's an, she's an incredible cook. So, um, yeah, her restaurant, I always love, um, Brooke Williamson's Playa Provisions is mm. on the beach. It's open. You know, it's like there's a cool patio with like, you know, fire pits and the menu's always delicious. Like Brooke doesn't, Brooke doesn't mess up. <laughs> like, I'm always like, yeah. how do you do it? Um, so yeah, there's some places that I go like that I know we're going to have, it's always going to have good food, but the vibe is right. You know, the, the etiquette and the vibe is right. And those are, those are a couple of my favorite places, but the joy of Santa, I mean, not just Santa Monica, the joy of LA is that there's always something. I mean, I was just getting my hair done yesterday and she's like, have you been to Donna? I'm like, no, what's Donna? And she's like, I can't believe you've even heard of it. It's so hard to get a reservation. You have to go. And I'm like adding it to my list. You know, it's like, there's so many places. Yeah. I lived in Chicago for six years and it was similar in that it seemed like every weekend there was a new place to try. Oh yeah. I was just in Chicago and the whole time I was there for seven days. I'm like, you're gonna have to roll me out of here. Like all we did was eat and drink. And we went with a chef, Jonathan Sawyer, who took us on like a food tour. And I'm like, he's like, okay, do y'all want to get pho after this or what? I'm like, no, I can't eat another thing. Like, what are you talking about? We've been eating all day. It was just, but it was incredible. And to go through with him and see things through his, through his lens. And also as a, you know, a, a local to Chicago was incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of my favorite cities to eat through. Um, definitely an eating and drinking town. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's important what you mentioned in terms of the vibe that, you know, the atmosphere, the staff, like amazing food is one thing, but when you can add those elements, like it's, it turns it from a delicious meal into a full fledged experience. Yes, absolutely. And you know, my boyfriend is such a stickler on lighting and I don't think I realized how much that plays a role until until dating him. But we went to a restaurant in Mexico City that's one of the best. And the lighting, I was like, I got a headache. It was just like this fluorescent lighting. And I'm like, what is happening? And I realized later it was the lighting. I'm like, oh yeah, that really matters. And that was another thing Lynn implemented in the Odeon all the time. Like the lights, it was like a, a time. You had to like really gauge it and know what was happening. So we had these big windows. So you were like going with nature. Like when do you need to change the lights? And I think that just adds to the to the experience, you know. Oh, and another restaurant. Sorry, now I'm on a tangent. Another restaurant that is my just like all time fave. It's very close to my house. It's called Birdie G's, and it's this chef Jeremy Fox, and it's so good. There's this lamb dish with like a crispy rice that just blows my mind, and their dessert, this like date bunt cake. It's just it's one of the best. I send people there all the time. Like you have to go. 
Yeah, you've definitely talked me into going on my next trip. Like from all you've talked about it a few times on the podcast. Yes, I know. There's some things that kind of like you know beat over people's heads on the podcast. I realize I should probably. I should probably. That's all right. <laughs> no, I think it, it shows how passionate you are about them. It makes me really want to try it. Yeah, Birdie G's is incredible. It's never disappointed. I'm just like it's always it's always great. So throughout your career, you know, whether it was back working on some of these reality shows like Biggest Loser or working on the food shows these days, you know, you, you really changed a lot of lives for a lot of people. Was there a point at which you realized you were doing that? Like, was there something that happened or someone thanking you or something where you're like, oh, wow, that person's life really changed because of this? Yeah, I think I have a couple um, experiences like that from different shows, but I'll never forget this woman, Hannah, um, that, that we cast on extreme weight loss and I met her and she told me her story. And I remember thanking her. I remember saying like, thank you for sharing your story because I think it's so hard to like be that open and intimate with someone who I'm a stranger and you're telling me this because you are so desperate to get this help. And she went on and she did great and she is still doing great. And we still keep up on, on the social media and stuff, but she just the set, like right when I saw her, when it ended, she ran up, gave me a hug and was just like, thank you so much. Like you've changed my life. And I'm like, <gasps> I'm like, well, I didn't, you did it. You did the work, but it was just such a sweet moment. Like it was me and our, the other girl that, that we were casting with and Holland and I were just like, in sh like in awe and in shock and just, I remember feeling proud. I was like, oh, this is the kind of show where I can feel proud that I've like, I feel like I had so little to do with it. You know, like she had to go and actually do all of this work, but to give her, to allow her the space and the opportunity was really special. Um, and I think moving into like the food side of things, it's anytime we have a, a chef on from diners, drive-ins and dives, come on to like guys grocery games or um, any other show. And they, they talk about their experience with that. Like, guy has the magic touch and he has changed lives by going to those mom and pop diners, drive-ins and yeah. dives. And, you know, I remember talking to a guy who in his interview, like all was like getting choked up. And he was like, um, he's like, I mean, I'm sending my kid to college because guy came by my restaurant. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> and he's like, we weren't making this kind of money three years ago. Like he came by, it put us on the map. And now I'm able to like, not just survive, I'm sending my child to college. That's something I never thought I was going to do. And that to yeah. me was, was, was huge. And I don't work on diners, drive-ins and dives, but knowing that, you know, I do work on shows where you can come on and show your chef talent and win money that can change your life is, yeah. it's pretty uplifting, you know, it makes you feel like yeah, you're, I mean, you're helping out. Yeah, it really shows the tremendous power of, of those shows and giving people an opportunity to tell their story, like you said. And, you know, I don't know if this is still the case, but I know when I was, I owned and operated a restaurant in Chicago for a couple of years. And I had read that uh, over 40% or that sales increased over 40% over the next year after a Triple D visit, um, which is just unbelievable. Like, really, you know, I think. It seems like whoever makes the decisions on where to go chooses the right ones, chooses good people that are deserving of an upswing, but um, and have great food, but is just a tremendous stat to read. Oh yeah, and it's also interesting when you when you hear like people will say like I always know when my episode has just re-aired or it's like there's been a rerun because there's a line out the door within like a couple of days, 
And I'm like, oh, that is, it's like the resurgence of it too. You know, yes, it airs when it's, you know, first comes out. And then I don't know if you've noticed, but like diners, drive-ins and dives and guys grocery games is on like a loop on Food Network. I mean, I can't even go get my nails done at my local nail salon without them having one of those shows on. And sometimes I'm like, ladies, this is my life. Can we like put it on like friends on TBS for a second? Like, my gosh, like, can I escape for just a moment? But it's so funny because it's on, you know, it's constantly on. So those episodes get re-aired a lot. And that provides a second, you know, a second wave of people realizing that's a restaurant they want to go to. And I know people who've literally done road trips, like hit all those places. So it's, it's life-changing for those, for those restaurants. And I think that's really special. Yeah. Agreed. And like, sometimes at night, my wife and I, if we're looking for something to kind of relax a little bit before bed, you know, we flip on Food Network and Triple D's on and it's yeah. an easy watch and yeah. it makes you a little hungry, but. <laughs> right. And I'm like, that's risky. See, I wouldn't be able to watch that right before bed because I'd be like, okay, well now I want like a greasy cheeseburger and fries at 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's really cool to see the impact that these things can have. And I think, you know, with my show and featuring innovators and impact, I want people to realize that you don't have to be in a job that sounds like you're doing social impact to actually create impact on people's lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like the first thing I said to you and you were like, you know, do the pot. I'm like, I have listened to your podcast and I'm like, I don't feel worthy. Like there's so many amazing, you've had so many amazing guests on who are doing such incredible work. And you know, of course, I had a moment of like imposter syndrome, like, why would I be on this podcast? And, and you were so kind to point that out that like these, these shows are, do have an impact and they are, you know, inflicting some sort of change in people in their lives. And to be at the helm of some of that is, is truly amazing. And I thank you actually for the reminder, <laughs> you know, sometimes you're just kind of in the grind and you don't realize, but it is. And I work with a lot of celebrity chefs a lot of times. And so I can also kind of forget, but these shows change their lives too. You know, that gives them a different form of livelihood and um, also working with the chefs that are from different, you know, lesser known and have restaurants around the country. It's yeah, it is life changing. They, it, they do have an impact. And I think, you know, like you said, turning on these shows, just the fact that it brings so much joy, like you remember watching Emerald, like these shows really do bring joy because they are easy watches and they're fulfilling and they're, you know, gives you something to like kind of like root for and be excited about. So yeah. Yeah. It's fun. And I'm glad you're getting the chance to reflect on that. And I know I remember you mentioned in one of your episodes, you have a friend named Maureen that really lifts you up and it's like, you're, you're there, you're in LA, you're doing it, you're doing your thing. And yeah. for you, you're kind of stuck in the grind and you don't yeah. take the chance to sit back. So I hope this discussion is an opportunity to do that too and to reflect on the great work that you've done. Yeah, it has been. And I, and I appreciate that. And, you know, just like I appreciate this conversation, it is, it is my friends, like, like Maureen, you know, I, I have, I have um, some good friends in my corner. I mean, my, I was just audio messaging all day on Sunday, back and forth with my best friend from college, Liz, and we have very different lives. She's a mom of three in Nashville. Like, you know, she's doing a very different life than me. And she's always so good at like taking herself out of that and like trying her hardest to put herself in my shoes and give advice. And, you know, it's probably why we've been best friends for so long, but yeah, I have, I have a good support system. My best friend, Lisa and I talk nonstop about just like life and all of that. So, you know, it's people like that, Maureen, Lisa, Brittany, you know, all of them who are like bringing you back and they remind you like, Hey, by the way, like you don't have just like a nothing job. I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. Thank you. 
Yeah, I love that. I think it's really important. And you mentioned a couple of people that have been pivotal in your career, some bosses and things like that. Has there been anyone in particular that's been an especially impactful mentor for you? Yeah, I think um, non-career wise, my um, mom's sister, my aunt Eileen, who is no longer with us, but she was always kind of like my major mentor, like my life mentor. She really kind of like paved the way for me. I think like I always like looked at her and was like, Ooh, I could do that. Or like, she was so independent and so, um, smart. And like, she was, a oh, she like broke glass ceilings in her industry as a woman. And I just remember being like, that is awesome. Um, so I think I always think of her in a mentor way, even though she was also my aunt and like my best friend, but, um, there's a guy I work with now, Brian Johnson, who is, I mean, I'm like, he's my rock. I'm like, is that, if that line, like work husband is a real thing, like <laughs> that is him. Like I call him for personal stuff, professional stuff. Um, if I ever have a tough time at work for something, like he is my cheerleader, my advocate. He's always kind of, you know, helping me understand things, you know, because in producing it's different all the time. Like your job's never the same. And so, I struggle with being like, I'm supposed to know it all, you know? And then I'll be like, what, do, what would you do here? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, you don't, <laughs> you know? Or he does know and he tells me and it's great, but it's um, he's been an amazing mentor and he's really helped kind of um, help me understand my way within our company. Um, and then I would have to say, since um, the podcast journey, I befriended um, a girl named Emily Landers who has a podcast called How'd She Do That? And I listened to an episode and we had a lot in common. It was her first episode. She's a twin sister. She's from the South. She's starting this podcast. And she was like, oh, we do. Um, and I reached out to her and she has been really instrumental and just like so helpful. I mean, from like sending me emails that she sent guests to like cluing me in on how she does things. And, you know, anytime I have a question, I can like, we like audio message back and forth through Instagram. She's been very helpful and um, she started her podcast a couple years before me. So it's nice to see like, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll be there by this time. Or, you know, just to kind of have someone to, to ping pong things off of. And she's been truly so kind to like offer me any of her time. So I'm always so, so grateful for people who have um, offered their time in that way. Yeah, that's awesome. And you're definitely paying it forward because I, you know, I reached out to you a while back and we had a chat and that was super helpful for me. And just, oh, thank you. you know, I found your podcast organically, you know, I found it through like Brooke Williamson or Kelsey Barnard Clark's like one of their yeah. Instagrams. Um, and then, yeah, just, you know, reached out because it seemed like we were doing some relatively similar things. And I love food. Yeah, no. And I, I remember that I was like, Oh my gosh, like an organic, an organic find. Cause that's always the, the, the sweet spot when you're like, Oh, this isn't my best friend who just listened to the episode. You know, you're always like, Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, I really appreciated you reaching out and obviously it led us here. So that's even um, more exciting. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, if you'd like, you can ask me a question now. Yeah, you know, I actually have a ton of questions for you, but I will I will keep it at this. I know you're a um, you know, an entrepreneur and the first time we spoke, you mentioned several things you had your hands in. I'm like, wow, you have your hands in a lot of pots here. Um, where does that like entrepreneurial spirit come from for you? And how do you manage all of that? Because I've always been so jealous of like the entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, I wish I could be my own boss and like find that thing I'm gonna do. But you seem to do it in so many like different 
areas and obviously well, and you're managing it well. So I'm just curious, like, where does that come from and how do you, how do you juggle it all? Yeah, no, uh, appreciate the question. And, um, it's not certainly not as glamorous as it seems, but, um, very much I'd say comes from my family, you know, my, my parents and even my grandparents. So, um, you know, people that have listened before have heard some of this, but, you know, all four of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Um, you know, they moved to the U S with very little money. Um, my mom's dad opened a gas station at one point and, you know, with the help of her mom running it. And so, you know, I have in my office at home, uh, a like best, I think it was like best franchisee or something of Texaco that my grandpa got. And so, so that was, that was cool. And then my, my dad's dad was also an entrepreneur. I mean, he was a jeweler for a while and then he was inventing a lot of things in addition to being a teacher. And my, I think my parents probably took it to the next level. Um, you know, they were together since they were 14 and 16, but, uh, in college at university of Florida, um, kind of when they weren't at class, they were managing a laundromat, a deli, um, and a record store. Uh, and they, while getting multiple degrees. So I think that's, you know, that's kind of where it comes from. And, you know, my dad eventually, you know, my family moved to Charleston and eventually started a, a business from the ground up and grew it tremendously throughout my lifetime. And it was something that my siblings and I got a front row seat to, and also like were brought into conversations. You know, my dad didn't have a problem bringing up business at the dinner table, yeah. um, and kind of cluing us into what he was working on. So you know, I think it's just very much in my blood and, you know, I've, I'm the type of person that I'm very passionate. I like a lot of things, so it's hard to pick one thing and just focus. So I've tried to find a way to keep things as interesting as I can. And, um, you know, in terms of managing it all, it's difficult. It's all about team, who you surround yourself with, you know, in every business that I'm in, I like to think I'm working with experts, um, that I can lean on. Um, and my producer of this podcast, Kate, she's been tremendous in, in helping me keep things organized and managed in both in and out of the podcast world. And, um, it's not, it's not easy. You know, I kind of have to pick yeah. and choose where I'm focusing and get pulled places when I'm needed, but, um, it keeps, keeps life interesting. And, um, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine doing one thing. So, you know. Right. So you're like, I have to do this because I can't just do one thing. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Uh, sounds like it's almost like ge genetics for you. You're like, it's just in the blood. <laughs> so, yeah, cool. no, I appreciate that that question. And yeah. Um, and yet I mentioned to you, you know, one of my endeavors, I owned and operated a restaurant. So we'll, we'll have to dig into that sometime as well. Yeah, I didn't realize that part. That's really cool. Yeah. And I, I worked in restaurants growing up. So, um, you know, the food world has a special place in my heart. Yeah, quite the undertaking. I'm like impressed that you <laughs> you took that on. I mean, we could do a whole episode just on opening and closing that restaurant. So Yeah. Gosh, that should have been my question, but I was thinking about your entrepreneurship. But now I'm like, dang, I should have been like, what were you thinking? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, that's fair. Um, I was young, but yeah, we definitely, let's dig in sometime on that and, you know, Aside from family, you know, if everything were to end tomorrow, whatever that means to you, what are you most grateful for or most proud of? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. I think, yes, of course, aside from family, love you all. Um, I would say probably, um, I think my relationships, like 
obviously family, but you know, I moved across the country when I was 22 years old and I've lived alone most of that. I mean, aside from like a roommate, you know, I've always lived alone and I've kind of, um, you know, the friends you make when you're across the country are like, they're not just friends. They, they are family. And I've been so fortunate to, um, meet and become friends with so many amazing people that even though they may have moved or, you know, they're no longer around, you know, around LA, whatever it is, like I've built a really amazing, um, friend circle that I hold so near and dear and, you know, their kids feel like nieces and nephews and they're, you know, it's, it's really, I, I think I value relationships so much because I just couldn't get through life without those sounding boards. And so I think I'd be most proud of that. And, and probably also my independence. I think, um, if I really break it down, I'm like, I'm pretty proud of like, you know, moving across the country. Most people at my going away party are like, how long are you going to be in LA? I'm like, what? I don't know. Like, how long are you going to be in Atlanta? Is anyone asking you that? Like, why is it like I have to have a timestamp on LA? And I think it was because it just seems so out of like left field to most people, but I grew up wanting to move here and I was, I was going to do it. And, um, the fact that it's 16 years later and I've done it and, um, you know, aside from like, you know, of course my parents helped every now and then when I was like, ah, what am I doing? I'm freelance. And I, you know, I've, I've, um, I really pride myself, I think on the, on the independence of it all. So I think those are the two things I'd be most proud of. I love it. And as you should be. And, uh, you know, the big question I asked toward the end of every episode is if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Gosh, I mean, there's just, so many things, I'm sure, you know, obviously we all wish we could snap our fingers and change so many things. Um, I think for me, when I think about stuff like that, it always goes back to, to children and their, their access to education. Like I'm just, it breaks my heart to think that a family someone's born into a neighborhood, someone's born into, uh, you know, a financial situation someone's born into prevents them from that, like right to have good education. And um, one of my good friends here, Alicia, has been on the um, associates board of the KIPP Foundation for a long time. And KIPP is a you know college prep program for um, low income communities. And I've had the privilege of going to all these events that she's helped co-chair and put on to raise money and support these children. And it's I mean, it's moving and it's talk about impactful. So I think I just like, when I think about people not having access because of things out of their control, just like, I wish I could be like, boom, you know, everyone, everyone gets education if they want it, you know, like I just, um, and I guess food scarcity, not to pick two, cause I'm sure it's not what you're going for, but I do a lot of work with um, a, a program here called Food Forward. And I've volunteered a lot for um, Lost Angels, which is an organization that provides food for, you know, low income and deserving communities and underserved communities around L.A. And if I'm ever here for Thanksgiving, I'm, you know, at the at the thing serving and helping. And I just, you know, food scarcity is always something that just grinds my gears. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we could have equality and access to education and food, it would certainly go a very long way in our world and making it a better place. And, you know, appreciate you sharing that perspective. And it's been tremendous having you on. Um, I love your work and, uh, you know, it's been great talking to you. And 
Uh, how can people listening support you and your work and your impact? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, thank you for having me on. It's been amazing to to have this conversation and um, to, to be asked. I was honored. So thank you. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, like I said a, a couple times already, I think that, you know, sharing stories is obviously my passion. It's become my job. And it's also what I, you know, started on the side with Table 5 to share people's stories and open people up to different perspectives and views and how people got where they are. And, you know, if if that is interesting to anyone else, um, they can follow Table 5 on any of the um, you know, podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Um, and that goes a long way in supporting the podcast and helping us grow. And then, um, you know, watching these shows helps everyone who comes on those shows. You know, when you watch one of these shows and you see a chef in your hometown come on and like, you know, win or lose, they're out there, they're doing it, they're representing and they're trying. Like, I feel like then you get to go to those those restaurants and support them. And that always is... I love thinking about that, you know, when they're like, you put us on the map or people came once they saw me on grocery games. Like, I, you know, I love stuff like that, hearing those stories and knowing that we maybe showed other people that there was a, a place to go and good food and a good chef and fun times ahead. So, um, yeah, watch watch Food Network and support Table 5, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll be sure to include links to, to all the various platforms and everything and um, yeah, it's been awesome having you. Thanks so much for your time. And I look forward to continuing our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. And I look forward to that as well. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.